1 Thessalonians 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this evening. Title of the message, Ministries Motivation. Ministries Motivation. We've talked much lately about the importance of seeing the world around us and operating within this world, the world that is around us, the material world as we thought about it this morning, through the eyes of faith. The concept is that we see the promises of the Word of God of more value and of more truth than the things that we see with our eyes, than the things that we hear with our ears, and even the things that we feel with our senses. This charge is difficult, though, isn't it? It's not like the outcomes of God's promises are consistently and tangibly seen. Certainly not as consistent and tangible as the outcome of the world's promises. What do I mean by that? I get pulled over for a taillight being out. It's been on my mind a lot lately because the fuse blew on my van and, and I didn't have any taillights for uh, a little bit better than a week. And so um, any, anything that had to be... I had brake lights still, but I didn't have taillights. I had turn signals, but I didn't have taillights. I had headlights, but I didn't have taillights. And so it was on my mind any time we got out anywhere near dusk that I might be in, in, in a bad, bad way if um, I were to get pulled over for not having those taillights while I was trying to figure out what the problem was with the car, with the fuse. So, say I get pulled over for that taillight being out. And I, I've known now, I know that the taillight is out and I still chose to go out after dark and, and drive. And, and um, even though I knew the potential consequences, um, I was willing to take the risk. Now I'm going to pull over and I, I know what the officer is going to do. He is going to ask me if I knew that my taillights are out. After all, the headlights were on, everything was on. Sir, do you know your headlights are out or your taillights are out? And I, I know he would ask me that question. And immediately running through my mind, I have, a, I have a choice, do I not? I can say, no, sir, I did not know my taillights are out. Knowing that most likely police officer would not hold it against me that I wouldn't know that my taillights are out because after all, I can't see my taillights while I'm driving. That is a answer, a dishonest answer, with an immediate tangible outcome, an immediate recognizable outcome of getting me out of the potential of getting a ticket. Now that's one choice. I could make. But the spirit within me recognizes that to say no would be a lie. To say that I didn't know my taillights were out when I did know my taillights were out would be a lie. And naturally, because God is true, God is the truth, in Him is no lie, to tell a lie, even to get myself out of a situation, would be displeasing to God. And it's just a little thing. Is obeying the Word of God worth the possibility of getting a ticket? Will it really matter that much? I have a choice to make. Do I trust 
the spiritual promise that says that if I will do what I know is right before God, that I will have blessing and uh, honor before God? Or do I pursue the tangible promise of this world that says if you lie, you can get yourself out of trouble before the authorities? Do I trust that the spiritual promises of God are worth more than the instant gratification of possibly getting out of a ticket? Are you willing to trust that God's word is of more truth and more worth than what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears? Am I willing to trust that God's truth, that the man who dwells in the truth will be a man that finds honor before God, will be a man that will find that spiritual blessing, spiritual blessedness, Am I willing to trust God's Word above the promises of the world? Even above what I have in my wallet? You know, the same concept translates into every aspect of our life, every decision, every crossroads as to whether we're going to trust the Word of God or do it our own way. Trust the Word of God or trust our flesh. Trust the Word of God or trust culture. Trust the Word of God or trust society. Trust the Word of God or trust government. And sometimes, this concept can even translate into the very ministries that we perform in the church and in the community for the Lord. See, ministry is an inherently spiritual enterprise. That means that by default, the spiritual results of the endeavor that is ministry are far more important than the physical results of that endeavor. We see it more tangibly, in a, we might say, in ministry than we do in other areas because it's ministry, because it is intended to be serving the Lord. But that doesn't make ministry any easier with the knowledge that the results are supposed to be spiritual. The results aren't necessarily supposed to be physical. It doesn't make it any easier to minister to others in the name of the Lord, trusting in the spiritual results of simply your personal faithfulness. Because in ministry, perhaps more than any other endeavor in this life, we desire to see results, or at least to see physical appreciation for our efforts. It's one of those things about ministry. Ministry is where you pour yourself out, not on your behalf, but on the behalf of others for God's glory. And yet, it's very difficult to do that day in and day out, to pour yourself out in a ministry, to pour yourself out for others, to pour yourself out for the Lord when you don't see tangible results. So we find ourselves in the place where if we're going to have any capacity to sustain a ministry, we must constantly be renewing our mindset as to the true results of that ministry. Whether we think about the ministry of Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, or we think about the individual efforts that we give to our church, putting out signs, shoveling the walk, preaching, leading music, cleaning the church, giving to the church, counting what is given. We must judge each ministry 
effort by its careful conformity to the expectations of God and His Word. We cannot judge our ministry based upon the tangible results or personal praise that we receive for our efforts. And so we look this evening at ministry's motivation. See, whether it's me in the pulpit or it's you in some less visible but no less important aspect of the ministry of Legacy Baptist Church, you will be miserable and you will lose your joy in the Lord and you will probably end up failing to please the Lord in that ministry if you cannot maintain loyalty to the spiritual principles of God's Word in the midst of perhaps failing to see the tangible results of your efforts. We'll talk about that a little bit more in our application this evening. We begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read the first six verses. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even... After that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts." For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. And we will finish there this evening. We go back to verse 1, and Paul says that, that the brethren themselves know of the entrance that Paul and his companions had unto them. We consider these concepts this evening through the eyes of the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the city of Thessalonica. He calls it not being vain here in the text. The idea that their ministry or their approach to ministry in the city of Thessalonica was not frivolous, not materialistic, not humanistic, in philosophy. The word vain literally is a word that means empty, a word that speaks of futility, either of purpose or of result. So Paul expects that the church has clearly seen through his ministry and understood that the manner in which Paul and his companions approached ministry in the city was not futile. It was not empty, either in its purpose or its results. Now, why would it be at all that Paul and his companions or that those in Thessalonica could have possibly thought under any circumstances that Paul and his ministry had been vain, had been empty, had been futile in its efforts? As we think about Paul's perspective in theory, we say what we ought to say. We think about the fact that the church was born in Thessalonica, right? And we say, of course, Paul's labor was not in vain and church was born. We think about the spiritual rewards of serving the Lord. And we say, of course, Paul's efforts were not futile. He went into that town. He worked hard. He saw people saved. Uh, a church was built. How could Paul, or anyone for that matter, think that the ministry there in Thessalonica was in vain, was empty, was futile? 
But let's think about Paul's perspective, not theoretically from that perspective of, of looking outside in and all the spiritual ideas, but from a practical perspective for a few minutes. Let's think about it practi- practically. Paul entered into a city where, by and large, very few believed. And for his efforts, Paul was run out of that city. And those who were left in the city faced dire persecution and even martyrdom for their faith. If we had been in Thessalonica, would we call that success? Is that what we would label success? If my family were run out of Buffalo tomorrow, and all that was left in, in this city was our little church of 30 some odd people and the, the entire city of Buffalo was feverishly and violently against this little group. Everyone else hated anything that we did. And even you 30 had to go into hiding, fleeing for your lives from the violence of the city. Would you or I look, look upon that situation a year or two later and say, this is a spiritual success story? That's the perspective that we need to be thinking about as we consider what Paul is trying to say here. But let's add another layer to this scenario, okay? Now imagine that before I came to Buffalo to plant Legacy Baptist Church, I had been 35 minutes away, or let's say in St. Cloud. And in St. Cloud, I had led some to Christ, but ultimately had been beaten with rods, thrown into an inner prison, fastened with chains. Now, the Lord miraculously released me from that prison. The guard and his household was saved. But let's add this concept to our scenario. I'm up in St. Cloud and I get beaten with rods and thrown into prison. I get released. It's time to go. I end up in Thessalonica where now I start a a small little work here uh, by the, the goodness and grace of God. And the work begins. And then there's such dire persecution that I am forced out of the city and those who are still in the city are persecuted and martyred. How would we be feeling? Would we count it as all having been worthy of our time and of our effort? As we move into verse 2, Paul adds that extra layer that we've been talking about to the scenario. He says, But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. That word contention meaning a major effort or a contest. Paul reminds the church how he responded to this scenario. He was bold in his witness in Thessalonica. He was shamefully entreated in Philippi, but he wiped the dust off of his feet. He got up, he went to Thessalonica, and he was bold in his witness to them. It didn't uh, scare him or it didn't deter him that in Philippi he had been shamefully entreated, he had been beaten, he had been imprisoned. Yes, they were shamefully entreated in Philippi, but should that be counted as a failure? Yes, they were run out of Thessalonica, but should their ministry be counted as worthless because it didn't perhaps bear a great deal of numbers? 
How was it that Paul was measuring the success of his ministry? It certainly wasn't by size. It certainly wasn't by receptivity. See, if, the, if these things, if size or if receptivity, if these were the measures of Paul's success, then he would have begun changing the way he ministered to adapt to the way he measured success. If numbers were what mattered to Paul, then he would have chosen a more pleasing, perhaps a more deceptive or more manipulative message in order to get the numbers. But notice what he says about his message in verse 3. He says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. The message was not one that strayed from the gospel to interest those that weren't interested in the gospel. The message was not one that appealed to the impurities of society to interest those who weren't interested in the purity of the gospel. And the message was not one that manipulated the people into accepting something they didn't understand or grab them and then retain them through fear. So then, if the message wasn't fraudulent, if the message wasn't impure, if the message was not manipulative, what was the character of Paul's message in Thessalonica? Well, Paul tells us in verse 4, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Paul describes it this way. The gospel is a responsibility that has been graciously given to us. God has allowed you and I to be put in trust with the gospel. The second half of verse 4, you see it there, says, Not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Far from the concept that certain circ- uh, of certain circles that believe that the gospel will perpetuate itself without the help of mankind, the Bible says clearly that God has entrusted His church with the responsibility of sharing the truth of the gospel with the world around it. And we ought to treat this responsibility with tremendous care. With the tremendous amount of care that it deserves. Now let's be clear here about the job that God has given to us with, pers- with the perspective of the gospel. It is our job to spread the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us this, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God has ordained a natural order of things. And in His divine wisdom and sovereignty, He has ordained that people get saved as they hear the Word of God and then as the Holy Spirit impresses upon them the truth of the Word of God, they then exercise faith in the truth of the Word of God and thereby accept it, receive it, and thus receive Jesus Christ who is the Word of God. That being said, it is not our responsibility to convince anyone or to unnaturally bring about the circumstances that will convince men. It is only our responsibility to tell men. 
We can reason with them. We can give them sound arguments. We can seek to persuade them. In all, our efforts are aimed to bring clarity concerning what God has already said. Then allow the Holy Spirit to do the convincing in their hearts. And each man then has the responsibility to either accept or reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit upon their conscience. So it's not our job to to drag people into the kingdom. It's not our job to save men. As a matter of fact, we can't do these things. It is our job to tell them. Last week we talked about the necessity of testimony. That there will be people that you can live a right testimony before who will never ever let, let you open your mouth and share the gospel with them in word. And as we consider these concepts, this is what we recognize. It is our job in word and in deed to show the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To declare the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's job to convince men. It is God's job to convict men. It is God's job to bring them to a place where they understand the truth. And then, of course, it's each individual's responsibility to accept it. If we get this concept confused, if we begin to think that it is our job to convince people or to convict people or to get them to agree with us or to paint the gospel in a deceptive light to make it more interesting or to reduce uh, their um, expectation of sacrifice, then we will begin to change our ministry from one that seeks to please God by conforming to His desires to a ministry that seeks to use the world around us to reach the world, to a ministry that seeks to convince men. Can you see how that could happen? If we begin to think that our ministry, that our duty is to somehow convince, convict, reach, save people, then our ministry toward people will begin to change to try to guilt them, or manipulate them, or soften the gospel in order to convince them that they should be a part of it. Instead of declaring the gospel because we want to please God, and then allowing God to do the work. So Paul says that he and his companions spoke not to please men, but rather to please God. And why does only God matter here? Because the worst that a man can do if he doesn't like your message is kill kill you, right? The worst that a man can do is kill your body. The very worst thing a man can do if he doesn't like your ministry is send you home to be with the Lord. The Scriptures tell us not to fear the man that can kill the body, but to fear who? He that can kill the body and the soul in hell. God, see, God tries our hearts. One day we will stand before God and we will answer to Him for how we conducted ministry upon this earth. One day I will stand before God and answer to God for every sermon I preached. One day we as a church will stand before God and answer for every song that we've sung and answer for every activity and I'll even answer for every guest speaker we've had. And it really doesn't matter what the people of Buffalo think of our ministry in the broadest sense. It really doesn't matter what other ministries think of our ministry. What matters is whether or not God is pleased with our ministry because God is the one who we will stand before and answer to one day. 
So Paul refused, verse 5 says, to use flattering words to win friends or to influence people. He says, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Paul refused to veil the gospel in a socially acceptable garb, only to slip the truth under the radar, as it were, when the people weren't looking. Paul wasn't interested in finding a back door into people's hearts. None of this mattered to Paul because Paul knew that it was his job not to get people to like what he had to say. It was his job to say what God wanted him to say. It was his job to do what God had asked him to do. And then, he says at the end of this verse, in complete consistency with his philosophy, he says, God is... Witness that even if those in Thessalonica, even if those in the church in Thessalonica didn't completely agree with Paul's personal assessment, his conscience before God was clear. He spoke the gospel in clarity. He spoke the gospel in honesty. He spoke it with integrity. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of violence, he served the Lord as the Lord desired to be served. And God is his witness that Paul pleased the Lord. Paul says, when I stand before God one day, my conscience will be clear because I did things in the way that I knew to the best of my ability. God wanted them done. It wasn't he didn't say, I'll stand before the Lord comfortable one day because of the number of people that got saved. He didn't say, I'll stand before the Lord comfortable one day because of how big the churches got that I planted. He didn't say, I'll stand before the Lord comfortable one day because the fellow ministers around me talk me up as, as though I'm a, I'm a very uh, special minister. Uh, I won't stand before the Lord one day and um, be thought well of specifically because everybody thinks I'm a good preacher. He says, I stand before the Lord and my conscience is clear before Him because I did things His way. He says in verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul says he kept his methods pure. But in verse 6, he tells us that it wasn't just his methods that were pure. It wasn't just the way he approached his declaration of the gospel and church planting that was right in the eyes of God, that was dedicated specifically to pleasing God and not to pleasing men, but his motives were pure as well. Not just his method, but his motives. Just as Paul's method was pointed in only one direction, and that being to bring glory to God, so that God would be pleased with him, so too his motives maintained this same level of purity. That Paul's motivation for what he did was exclusively driven by whether or not God would be pleased. He says that he didn't seek glory of those in Thessalonica, nor of those in other cities. And just as he had done in Corinth, he refused to accept any financial support from the people in Thessalonica. Paul did everything possible to ensure that his testimony, that the testimony of his motives for delivering the gospel could be said to be nothing other than his love for the Lord and his determination to obey the will of God. Paul sought for nothing on this earth in recompense for his ministry, but only that he pleased the Lord with every action and every intention and every result. 
Would to God such would be the testimony of our own hearts before God. That at the end of every service, that at the end of every Sunday, that at the end of every week, that at the end of every calendar year, as we look back upon that day, that week, that year, we could stand before God in good conscience and boldly declare that as God is our witness, everything we have done has been genuinely done because of our love for God and our obedience to God's Word and our desire for God's glory. That there would be no ulterior motive in our service to God. That we would seek no usurping of God's glory by our methods. That we would not get to the point where we're frustrated if we don't get some recompense, if we don't get some recognition for the ministry that God has entrusted to us. And as we apply these concepts this evening, I'd like to take this in two different directions. First, I'd, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like us to, to consider these concepts within the context of broader church ministry. And then I'd like to boil it down to each one of us and our ministry here at Legacy Baptist Church. As Legacy Baptist Church operates in this time and place, is this, in this culture and in this society, are our methods as a church and our motives as a church correct? And as members operating within Legacy Baptist Church, are our methods and our motives right before God, as God is our witness? So let's ask this first question. What does this passage mean for our churches ministry, for the ministry of Legacy Baptist Church, among other churches, among other organizations, and in Buffalo and to the surrounding areas. First, consider with me a church culture that gauges success entirely by material and physical standards. And so they seek to adapt their ministry to the desires of society and of culture. The spirit of these churches desires to make the expectations and rewards of the gospel palatable to the carnal mind. These churches have forgotten that the expectations and rewards of the gospel cannot be perceived with a carnal mind. That only those who are willing to exercise faith in the revealed Word of God will ever recognize that Jesus Christ's yoke is easy, as He said, and His burden is light that the rest of the world will see the gospel of Jesus Christ as foolishness. Paul taught it in 1 Corinthians. Jesus Christ said, Surely in this world you will have persecution. Know that if they hate, hate you, they hated me first. There is nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ that indicates that the carnal mind will be receptive to it. There's nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ that indicates that the carnal mind will enjoy it. Now, as Watchman Nee said, the world loves the fruit of the gospel. The world loves the fruit of Christianity. The world loves to see people that love their neighbor. The world loves to see people that are honest. The world loves to see people that have integrity. They love to see the fruit of the gospel. They love to see the fruit of Christianity, but they hate the gospel itself. They hate Christianity itself. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. And so when a church says, 
physical and material prosperity is the gauge of our success, and they begin thus to appeal to those who are not believers in order to bring about the results of physical or material prosperity in the church, and they start to bring people into the church by watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ or by mixing the world with the church, what they are doing is they are yielding the promises of God's Word as it pertains to spiritual success for the worldly, physical, material, tangible results of carnal success. Now, I'm not saying that every big church does it wrong. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every big church is doing it wrong. But what I'm saying is the big churches that are doing it right didn't try to get big. They tried to do what was right. And they got big. The churches that are trying to get big have the wrong motive. The spirit of these churches sees success ebb and flow with popularity and dollar signs rather than with the fruit of the Spirit and their testimony among the world. The spirit of these churches think there is something wrong when the world around them is not interested in their message. The spirit of these churches places form over function, looking good and leaving people in the same condition when they leave as when they arrive. This is a church culture that has lost sight of the fact that the only one we ever need to please for what we do in this life is God. They have lost sight of the reality that God's way is not simply the best way, but it is the only way to truly please God. These churches tend to have good motives, but poor methods. But second, I'd like us to shift our minds to the opposite end of the spectrum as we consider or continue to consider the place that Legacy Baptist Church has in broader church culture. Our church in the midst of churches. And on the other end of the spectrum, we talk about another group of churches, a church culture that, again, gauges success in one way or another based upon material and physical standards. But this time, they don't gauge their success by adapting their ministry to society's desires. Rather, they go to the other end and they manipulate their people into maintaining legalistic standards. The spirit of these churches maintain a high degree of self-righteousness by espousing the superiority of their standards above those of the rest of society, whether religious or secular. The spirit of these churches seek to keep its followers in line doing what they're supposed to do through various efforts of spiritual manipulation, holding certain actions as the pinnacle of spiritual ambition, which are in fact nothing more than standards typically. The spirit of these churches is proud, is unyielding, seeking personal glory through adherence to a set of church rules. Now these churches, whereas the, the other end of the spectrum tends to have good motives but poor methods, these churches tend to have pretty good methods in that what they're doing is indeed uh, like the Pharisees, things that, that the Bible would, would like us to do, but they miss the mark because their motives are all wrong. They're doing out of self-righteous pride instead of doing it to please the Lord and for the right motives. And so we see that as a church, we are called to walk a very fine line 
Perhaps we might call it walking a very narrow road. Now, I don't want to place churches into too tight of a box this evening. But if you would allow me to generalize some, I do believe we uh, can see, based upon a spectrum, we can place churches in categories in accordance with what Paul is presenting in 1 Timothy 2, 1-6. We cannot be a church or we cannot be Christians whose methods are full of impurity and worldliness even though we might have some good motives. This produces a worldly, carnal Christian that aside from any good intention simply cannot produce a proper testimony in the world. The gauge of success for these churches is often numbers or wealth or popularity, all of which have absolutely no bearing on eternal or spiritual fruit. But likewise, we cannot be those churches or Christians whose methods are rooted in piety, yet our motives in those actions are legalistic or manipulative. This produces a proud and a carnal Christian that, though he doesn't look or act like the world, is driven by the same lust of self-righteousness and pride that any other pagan religion aspires unto. Once again, we're fooling ourselves to think that such a Christian can reflect a proper testimony to the world. The gauge of success for these churches is often conformity, sometimes persecution. Whether or not everybody in the church is properly conforming to the standard that's been set up, or whether or not the world around them hates them enough to persecute them for what they believe is right, both of which have no bearing on eternal or spiritual fruit. Rather, we are asked to be what Paul demonstrated in his own ministry, a people of pious and pure methods and genuine God-honoring motives who hold to what the Bible says and do so because we desire the glory of God above all else. The gauge of success for churches and for Christians who will act in such a way is whether or not they can, in good conscience, stand before God one day and answer for their ministry according to the precepts and principles of the Word of God so that Big or little, poor or wealthy, God's word has been magnified and obeyed among them. This is the gauge of success for a ministry that understands what Paul is teaching. So that's what it means for our church ministry, that we are called and we must constantly be evaluating to ensure that we are walking this this line, this narrow road, that we are not seeking to to conform our message to the world in some physical definition of success. And we are not seeking to conform our people to some legalistic standard as our definition of success, but much rather that we are walking in the Spirit and seeking in every motive, in every action, in every method to desire that God would be glorified and to leave the tangible results up to God. But what does this mean for our ministry within the church? For our ministries at Legacy Baptist Church. We know that we desire to be, as a church, a church that is balanced. 
A church that has proper motives in what we do. We desire to hold to the Word of God regardless of its tangible results. We know that we're not perfect. We don't claim that everything that we do is right. But we're working. We're trying. We aren't interested in personal glory. We're interested in God's glory. We aren't interested in manipulation or personal deceit. We aren't here peddling an ideology. We are here learning the truths of God's Word. And these truths have been validated in our hearts through the fruit of the Holy Spirit as it has consistently manifested itself in our lives. But what about us in the church? What about your ministry in the church? You and I have responsibilities in this church, don't we? We all do things. Perhaps our methods aren't as much in focus here because the methods are laid out by the church. My wife plays the piano as the church has asked her to play. We set up as the church has asked us to set up. We tear down as the church has asked us to, set, to tear down. We um, write out checks and such as the church has asked us to do. Count the money the way the church has asked us to count the money. But what about motives? Our motives can get distorted oftentimes in a larger scope of church ministry. But it can also be distorted in a smaller scope of church ministry. As your pastor, what makes me do what I do? Am I motivated by response? If I don't get a certain number of responses, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Am I motivated by a desire to hear how good of a preacher I am? Am I motivated by the determination to form a little group of Jamanites who follow me regardless of what I say? Am I motivated by money? Looking for an easy and secure way to make a living? Am I motivated by fame? Hoping that one day I'll have my head on a billboard. You know? What, what makes me tick? What motivates me? Am I motivated by a love for God? a tireless adherence to the principles and the precepts of God's Word? Do I see my success as a product of what people think of me or do I see my success as a product of what God thinks of me according to His Word? These are the questions I must answer. These are the battles I must fight. I must ensure that my relationship with God is in a right place My motives are in the right place. I see my success the way God sees my success so that I can say with Paul in verse 4 that the things that I've done, I do not as pleasing men, but God which trieth my heart. But what about your ministry in this church? Set up, tear down, piano playing, check writing, church cleaning, whatever it might be. Is your service and your ministry motivated by personal pride? Have you begun to gauge the success of your ministry by some carnal standard? Are you frustrated when you don't get recognized for what you do? Do you see your efforts as empty or worthless because they don't conform to some physical or material standard? Could the word deceit, uncleanness, or guile be used to describe any aspect of your method or motivation in the ministry that you do? See, sometimes when we lose focus in ministry, ministry becomes a chore. becomes a burden instead of being what it ought to be. 
Sometimes we get to the point where we see this ministry that we do and we say, how come I do everything around here? How come nobody else can pick up the slack? If I were to leave today, this whole church would fall apart. And we, we, we see things that way instead of as we're busy doing what we're supposed to be doing, we say, God, no one else may notice, but I labor not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God. I'm going to labor in such a way that my motivation for what I do, that the heart attitude with which I do it, is to please the Lord with all my heart. Pastor may not have been pleased. I don't know why, but pastor may not have been pleased. But did I do what I do with a good conscience before God? I may never get recognition for it, but the Lord saw me serving Him. What I really want us to boil our thoughts down to this evening is what we do, why we do it, when it comes to ministry. If we spend our time worried about what others think about us, it will produce one of two results. It will, divide, it will drive our methods, excuse me, to become carnal in order to please others. Or it will move our motivation away from pleasing God and change it into pleasing ourselves or someone else. And when we find ourselves there, we find ourselves in a place where our ministry is not exclusively focused on pleasing God. If we begin to think that it is our job to convince people, even our children, that they need to obey the Bible, it will produce one of two results. It will drive our methods to be that of manipulation, spouting false claims or worst-case scenarios, misinterpreting the Word of God to prop up our teachings, or it will move our motivation away from seeing people truly desire to obey and please God and change it into some form of behavioral modification. If we can't do what we do in this church, whether it's door knocking or setup or tear down or piano playing or cleaning or supplying or praying or whatever it might be, if we can't do what has been asked of us without some carnal motive or some carnal um, issue creeping in, then there's something amiss. But on the other hand, if we, both as a church and as individuals, can orient our hearts and minds to be fully invested in the glory of God so that personal results and personal glory do not rank as high as personal obedience and God's glory, then we will find ourselves in a place where God will be glorified and regardless of the results of our efforts in this life, we can rest assured God is our witness that there will be a reward in the life to come. And this is the balance we must seek. Can we trust that God's Word has the power to change lives if we will preach it with our mouths and reflect it with our actions? Can we place our faith so squarely in the Lord that we can be abased or we can abound. We can suffer or we can prosper. We can have little or we can have much. And either way, we know that in whatsoever state we find ourselves, we can be content because we've obeyed the Word of God, because we've served the Lord with gladness, because we've done 
what we've been asked to do according to the Word of God. Can we balance this philosophy with a determination, however, to improve ourselves as a church? Not get stuck in a rut that says, okay, we finally found a method that works and okay, motives are fine, so now let's just stay in our little rut forever. But rather say, okay, where do we need to improve? What needs to change to improve our church? To become better at what we do. Not through compromise, but through prayerfully and righteously altering our methods. Uh, inspecting our motives to become a more effective representation of the Word of God in our communities. You know, I think we can strike this balance. I think we can find it. But certainly not in our own strength. We will only be able to find these results that please God through the Spirit of God. And in doing so, I honestly believe that each one of us can minister week in and week out in such a way that we can call God as our witness to the genuine and pious motives and methods that compel our lives. So as we close this evening, I encourage you to search your heart. I broadened the topic this evening, but as I was beginning to write this message, I wrote it under the conviction of the individual things that we do for this church. As I prepare sermons, as my wife prepares music, as you do the things that the church has asked you to do, sometimes without results, often without results, sometimes without praise, often without praise, sometimes without what we might consider recompense, often without what we might consider recompense. Can we say, as it was said by Paul in chapter 2, verse 4, that we are doing what we are doing, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Let's pray.